What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This week's episode is brought to you by Intercom. Quality pipeline means more revenue. And when you use Intercom, you get both. Intercom is the business messaging platform that streamlines your funnel. Its live chatbot automatically qualifies and converts site visitors into leads, driving the type of growth your business deserves. Find out all about it at intercom.com slash growth. That's intercom.com slash G-R-O-W-T-H growth. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm John Rojas, and it feels like it has been forever since I've talked to you in the intro. All right, sometimes you hear a story that is so fascinating, so phenomenal, that you want as many people to hear it. And that's how I feel about this week's guest. This week, we're talking to Barbara Lipska. Barbara is an internationally recognized leader in human postmortem research and animal modeling of schizophrenia. She's currently the director of the Human Brain Collective Core at the National Institute of Mental Health. And Barbara recently had a book come out called The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery. It's an unbelievable story, and it's fascinating to learn about our brain, mental health, and all kinds of other great things. All right, before we jump into the interview, I want to cover a few housekeeping things. I'm sure you've heard Chris talk about it before, but I'm going to bring it up again, and that is Smart People Society. You can head over to smartpeople.com society to learn more about it, but essentially, we are looking for a group of passionate listeners who want to help shape the direction of the show. So if you're interested, head over there, sign up for that email list, 
and we'll send you more information. Plus, the first 50 that sign up get a free book from a huge selection of past guests that we have. And as always, subscribe to the show, tell your friends about the show, shop through our Smart People Podcast Amazon link, but I won't bore you anymore, and we'll move into the interview with Barbara Lipska. Enjoy. All right, Barbara. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. All right. So we're here to discuss the wonders of the brain. And we were actually just talking about it. And you said, we are the brain. When you say that, what do you mean by that? That everything about us, how we move, if we move, how we dream, if we dream, if we love, whom we love, is located in the brain. No brain no other functions that I just mentioned, and many, many, many more. <laughs> I was reading something recently about our modern-day emphasis on the brain and how it's pulled us away a little bit from the fact that there are other parts of our anatomy that are very intelligent, specifically the gut and the way that all the neurotransmitters that are there and, in fact, the gut feelings we get and how other cultures really relished those gut feelings and how we don't because we believe we are just the brain. What do you think about that? Well, I, I don't think that feelings in the gut, but there's no question, and there has been a lot of evidence, especially recently, that what happens in the gut affects the function of our brain. All the bacteria that are there are sending some kind of signals to the brain. Um, so it is, they are important. Our whole body, of course, is important. I'm just saying that if not for the brain, there would be no us. We can cut out the, cut off the leg, cut off the hand, cut off the arm. Sorry for this sure, rather sure. grim. <laughs> possibilities and we would still be there we would be feeling and 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 alive i'm not talking about the the heart of course a heart is just a muscle mm. muscle that pumps blood to our body without which we wouldn't be able to live but the brain is very special because it really functions on so many levels and uh especially uh, because it um, directs all these what we call higher cognitive functions that I mentioned, em empathy, love, feelings, perspective, planning, um, all kinds of very complex behaviors. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And now let's let's give the listeners a little bit about your background. So first, let's start with this. You are the director of the Human Brain Collection Corps at the National Institute of Mental Health, which yes. in and of itself sounds awesome. But but do <laughs> me a favor. Tell me what that means, what you do now, and what an average day looks like. Okay. Okay. So maybe I'll start with the, uh, with the statement that I've always uh, worked all my professional life on, um, on studies of mental illness. I started in my native Poland, and then I continued at the National Institute of Mental Health, where I moved from Poland, um, and I never went back, uh, in 1989. So in 2013, I became a director of 
the brain bank. It is called Human Brain Collection Core at the NIMH. So what do we do? We collect human brains, post-mortem brains, of course. Hmm. Um, uh, and why do we do this? Because they are an excellent, excellent tool to study brain function. And in particular, in our research, we study mental illness. So we collect brains of people who suffer from mental illness and their families uh, very graciously um, agreed to donate the brains of their loved ones. And we are very, very grateful for that. Um, so um, they are absolutely um, necessary to study um, brain function at the molecular level. Imaging doesn't have the same resolution as molecular studies in the post-mortem brain. We cannot, unfortunately, most of the time study living brains. We can, we can do some imaging and um, binding studies, but it's not the same as pinpointing all the molecules in the brain region or the whole brain by very sophisticated techniques. For instance, RNA and DNA sequencing. Well, this is now at the front on these kinds of te techniques that allow looking across all the genes expressed in the brain, if we do it in the brain, of course, um, all the genes, um, how, they, how they function. So RNA is the, uh, is the product of gene function. Genes make RNA, and RNA make, make proteins. Proteins are the ones that then do all kinds of functions in the brain. So it is incredibly important that we have this substrate for our research. And we, in our brain collection core, have over, uh, over many years, we have collected over a thousand brains that they are sitting in the freezers in minus 80 degrees Celsius and are waiting for all kinds of studies that investigate us across the world, but mainly across the U.S., but also around the world. Request, we send them the samples and they study them. So the samples are sent after, um, after the approval by the committee. So we have to look at what what they want to study. Is there enough um, evidence that that's a worthwhile study? Mm -hmm. And if we and others decide that it, it is, then we send the brain samples, RNA or DNA, so all kinds of derivatives of these tissues as well. Wow. that is. Are you ever weirded out by the fact that there's brains surrounding you at work? Like the, the brain <laughs> seems so gross. I mean, I would love to slice into one, but... I don't know. I'm just curious. So I, I will tell you that I really vividly remember when I held my first brain yeah. in my extended palms. It was like a bloody piece of flesh. Bloody. Oh. Very bloody. And so ordinary by its bloodiness and its weight and the looks even. Although, you know, the looks might have been more complicated than your usual piece of 
meat, I would say, but sure, it's sure. not nice to even use that word <laughs> in this instance. Okay, so I was holding this brain. I could not imagine that what I'm holding in my hands was dreaming, loving, feeling, seeing, moving your body. It's just incredible yeah. what yeah. this piece of flesh can do. Yeah, that's what strikes me. Now, when you cut into it, I mean, from, with the naked eye, does it just continue to look like a fairly bland structure? Or do you start to see the intricacies immediately? Um, when you slice it coronally, I w um, so <laughs> you can slice it in all kinds of directions, but they are called either sagittal, coronal, or horizontal cuts. We cut them coronally. So perpendicular to the surface of the brain, if you put your hand on the skull, mm -hmm. you would place a knife perpendicular to that and cut through. First at the level of your eyes, going back to the back of your skull. So that's what we do. We, we slice brains into slabs. Mm -hmm. uh, slabs meaning thick slices. And when you do this, of course, there's blood dripping when we do this, but you can see the structures. Mm. You can see the white matter that is fibers running through the brain from one brain region to another, and you can recognize the structures. It's very funny that at the beginning, it looked just like a mess to me. I couldn't recognize anything. Mm -hmm. but the more I studied it and the more I looked, it's obvious that you can see different colors, different structures. And now when I know what they do, it's still a totally different matter because now I can even think about, oh, that's the structure that made this person human, frontal cortex. Right. And we believe that frontal cortex is very important for for the studies of um, mental illness, because perhaps there's something wrong with its function in people with mental illness. What is it about mental illness that sparked your interest? I can really clearly understand the brain. I think anyone should be and probably is fascinated by the brain. Going into the field is just a, a I guess, manifestation of that. But why mental illness? Uh, it started very, very, a very long time ago. Uh, my first job as, a, as an organic chemist, because I got my master's degree in organic chemistry, was to study pharmacokinetics of antipsychotic drugs, so drugs that are used to cure, well, they don't cure them, but elevate symptoms of schizophrenia. And I was doing it in the Institute of Psychiatry and Neurology in Poland. This was also a, a hospital for mentally ill people. So to get this blood for my studies, I have to go, I had to go to the wards, see the patients, hold the tube. Next, the nurse was drawing blood, but I was the one holding the tube next to the person who was mentally ill, having schizophrenia. And it was terrifying, I have to say. This really shook me up. And it was the beginning of my interest in mental illness. I couldn't believe that these people are suffering so much, that they look as if they are not there. Sometimes they were angry. They didn't um, 
um, do the eye, eye contact, they were looking past you. And all this, unfortunately, ironically, happened to me <laughs> mm. later. Yeah, which is what I absolutely want to get into. And that's also what you wrote about in your book, The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery. So we'll get into that, but we are not done with the brain yet. Um, Okay. So I'm always curious when I talk to people like you've spent your whole life in this field. How much do we know about the brain? I really am curious where we stand in history on our knowledge about this most incredible organ. Definitely not enough. Way, way not enough. You have to remember that um, funding for mental research, and I'm talking about mental research as not about the studying of the brain, but it's, it's the same thing. You have to study the brain that doesn't function in order to understand the brain that does function and vice versa. So uh, funding for this research is minimal compared to other areas of, of science. For instance, cancer research has been funded enormously. And thankfully so, and I was one of the beneficiaries of that funding and the drugs that were designed uh, with Obama Brain Initiative, we did get a lot more funding for studying brain. Uh, but um, it is the most complex device in the universe. Mm-hmm. That's what um, great people say. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it will take time to understand it. It is really, it requires very sophisticated techniques to understand it. We have just been developing such techniques. Uh, Imaging uh, has um, made huge advances. Uh, Molecular biology, genetics, all this is very helpful, but it requires a lot of smart people and a lot of money to understand it fully. And we're nowhere near to understand mental illness, nowhere near yet. Yeah, which blows my mind. I mean, I feel like it's been on the radar for so long. How have we made such little progress? And I mean, when you think about, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the drugs used to to really help mental illness haven't really changed for, what, 30 or 40 years, in in my opinion. Actually, a lot more. Because is, is it really? Okay. Yeah, tell us about that. So the first uh, antipsychotics were were found uh, by um, by sheer happenstance, <laughs> not by uh, as a result of, of any research in the 50s. Um, chlorpromazine was one of those. Um, and uh, yeah, there are some advances. So there are some new generation drugs, but do they do a lot more? Maybe to some to some patients, but mm, that's a little arguable. Um, so we haven't made much of the advance in terms of curing the illness since the 50s. So how many years it is? Yeah. 70 years, right? Yeah. Uh, or almost. Uh, we have a way to go. Is the reason for the lack of innovation due to the motivations of the drug companies? They are more motivated to tweak an existing drug, which costs less and then make more, or put all of this money into R&D and very likely not succeed? 
I think it's probably both, but you have to remember that mental illness is incredibly difficult to study because what do we study as an endpoint? Behavior. And behaviors are extremely complex. It is not that, you know, you can say, oh, this person has schizophrenia, we'll give him this drug and it disappears or not. How do you, how do you measure it if it disappeared or not? A patient who is still sick may have uh, hallucinations or other symptoms one day, but then even several hours later, they go away and they come back. So behaviors are very difficult to study. They fluctuate in time and they are, and they are, very, they are different from one person to another person. Uh, it is almost as if you uh, were thinking about altered behavior, but on the background of someone's personality. So I can, because of my personality, I can display it display very different set of behaviors, even if I were diagnosed with the same illness, let's say schizophrenia, than another person who is shy, um, submissive, introvert. I, I consider myself just the opposite. So, um, so anyway, it is very difficult to study and compare it with cancer. In cancer, you have the cell or the tissue or the person who has the tumor or malignant cells or not. It's very, I mean, very easy. If you have, uh, if you have tools to, to see it, it's, it's uh, much easier to study cancer than mental illness for that reason. And it's um, for the same reason, it's, it's much easier to study whether the drug is or is not effective. Sure. So it's complexity, and you're right. I mean, it's always easier to tweak than to come up with with something new, especially if it costs tons tons of money. What, what is the newest thinking around what causes mental illness? And you can feel free to get as scientific as you want, and we will pick out what we understand. But I'm just curious, you know, the, the leading minds at this moment what do they think uh, is the cause? How does the brain relate to mental illness? Let me start with the statement that we really don't know. But mm. there are all kinds of hypotheses and, um, that are being tested, and there are proponents of this and that hypothesis. But almost everybody agrees that genes and environment are involved. So it is, n it is not only genes, because mental illness is not 100% heritable, but only 50% I think in identical twins. And the rest is environment. So what do we, what do we mean by environment? It may be prenatal environment of in the, when the, the unborn baby is in the womb. We have no idea at what point in development something which we cannot even say what is this what this something is but there are different theories like uh, I may list them a moment later um, so something in the womb or later very early in development because there's a lot of evidence that if 
that that people who would later develop schizophrenia and schizophrenia emerges usually in young adulthood in people, not from childhood. But these people, if you look back in the hindsight, their families claim it was even evidence on the homemade movies that these kids are not completely, do not completely develop completely normally as other kids. They, they have some delayed development, but it may be true for other kids too who never later develop schizophrenia. We're talking now about group differences, not about individual differences. You cannot look at the homemade movie now and say, uh-oh, something is wrong. This person is in danger. If we could, we would have probably done it. But as a group, this group of people who later develop schizophrenia behave slightly differently in, child, in very early childhood. Hmm. But when this environmental thing happened, we don't know. Very early childhood or in the womb. And there are genes involved. There's no questions about it because um, all mental illnesses tend to run in families. But again, as I said, it's not 100% heritability. What is the current thinking around the neurotransmitter hypothesis that so many mental illnesses are due to some difference too low, too high of certain neurotransmitters? We believe now it's a simplification, but it was something that that um, we hold held on to for a very long time. That is too much uh, dopamine in the striatum or too little dopamine in the in the frontal cortex. Um, the, the serotonin, which is involved because these newer drugs like clozapine work on the receptors um, that bind serotonin as well as, uh, as dopamine. But it seems to be much more complex than this. And to just summarize it with one sentence, I'm not sure I could even do um, so it is, there is no question that an anti-dopaminergic drugs, that is drugs that, that block dopamine receptors, that is antipsychotics, help, help people with schizophrenia. Um, in particular, they help in, uh, blocking hallucinations, mm -hmm. but do they cure the disease? No. Even if they help, we don't yet know why, is what you're saying. Exactly. We don't know why. Mm -hmm. And there have been hundreds of different theories, which, you know, held for a while, and then everybody forgot about them. And um, so it is complicated. But as I said before, part of the complexity is that it's so difficult to study. Who improved, who didn't? What scales, what tests, what behaviors one is looking at? We're not there yet. So let's try and end this part of the conversation on a happy note. I'm curious, with all the research that's going on, right, the money that came from the Obama administration, um, the, the brains that you guys are collecting, the work that people across the world are doing, what is the most recent advance that you think we've made that shows progress? Because it still sounds like we know so little, which I understand, 
But I'm wondering what progress is being made and if you can highlight that advance for us. Okay, so the <laughs> we'll be disappointed, but oh, no. the progress uh, that we made is we can admit what we don't know. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, so it seems um, uh, it seems um, sure that that there are many, many, many genes involved, and there may be many by genes involved. I mean many gene variants in people with mental illness that may lead perhaps to the emergence of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression. Um, but it is also possible, and I'm talking many, I'm talking thousands perhaps, but what is even more uh, complicating the whole uh, field is that there may be different genes in different people with the same disorder. So what we learned is that the disorder that we call schizophrenia or bipolar or depression may not be this one disorder, one that there is a lot of overlap perhaps between those different mental illnesses. But also, maybe they, they can be subdivided into some, some subtypes that would be reflecting not how people behave, but what is in their genes. But we're not there yet to be able to do this. Yeah, well, at least maybe that is progress. I, I absolutely agree with you. It <laughs> is disappointing. I am disappointed myself. I spent 40 years in this field, but... There may be a breakthrough. It is like with this cancer that I benefited from, mm -hmm. immunotherapy. Who would have thought that cancer has anything to do with the immune system? Barbara, let me, let me just pause you there because I am fascinated by this as well. So we're going right into that in a moment. So before, <laughs> before you uh, pull back the curtain... <laughs> right. I'm not pulling the curtain yet. <laughs> um, but here's the last thing I want to say there because it was it was really interesting. You said you spent 40 years on this, and all we know is what we don't know. And now I understand from an outsider how that is is beneficial. That's progress. I really do, and I'm grateful for people such as yourself who dedicate their lives to improving the health of the human race. I think it's incredible, and I kind of wish I would have done it. But from your perspective, how does that make you feel about your work in the industry, knowing that, you know, almost a lifetime of work hasn't really shown any clear improvements? And I don't just mean your work, obviously. I mean that 40-year span of your industry. Yeah, but it is. I don't think it is for nothing. It is incremental progress that we do. So these are pieces that we add to, to the bank of knowledge that would that count and perhaps one day there will be an explosion of knowledge and these pieces will be used to make the whole i don't know i hope that that's the case that all these papers that i published approximately 150 papers and other people publish in the field thousands and thousands of other papers on different topics that one day they will make sense to someone. Sure. Uh, I hope it will happen in my generation, but frankly, I don't think so. 
It is too complicated. I'm not a pessimist. I'm actually a great optimist. But I see the complexity of it. And uh, I don't think it is for nothing. But will we see the cure of mental illness within my lifetime? Mm, Probably not. I was just talking to somebody about how, you know, almost 30 years ago was the 90s. And like that, that just blows my mind because you think at 30 years from now, how much we will have changed, solved. I mean, I think, oh, 30 years from now, we're going to be living to 200. We're not going to have these diseases, you know, or maybe even 50 years from now. But the truth is things move slow until they don't. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's just slow. And then that thing happens. And I think that's what you're alluding to, how all this research one day will culminate and it'll be, we'll be thankful for the work of all those people who, who made that progress. I hope that's exactly the case, but I don't know for sure. So, well, let's get into the other incredible part about your journey, which is your the the illnesses the the things that struck you and how close they hit to home so let's start here you had uh both breast cancer and melanoma first what i'm really wondering you know somebody who is a scientist who spends their entire life understanding the brain but as well as the body how shocking is it to see your own body in just those first two experiences working against you yeah it was shocking because um until a certain point in my life i really felt invincible uh in addition to being a scientist and uh, you know i thought i understand uh, a lot about how the body functions i was also an athlete um i ran marathons and and i did triathlons uh, I was actually preparing for my first Ironman when this disaster struck. Wow. So I thought I'm completely prepared mentally and physically for anything that is thrown my way. But, uh, well, it now in, in perspective, I see that it did help. But why did it strike me? Why? I ate healthy, I exercised, I was in a great physical condition. Um, I was mentally involved in, you know, very challenging work. Why did it happen to me? I think it just happened by chance. That's what happens. Mm. Someone is unlucky. I'm un- I, am, I, I would say I'm lucky. I'm lucky in the very unlucky situation. Because I started from a very high level of both physical uh, condition and and mental condition, and I was struck. And then um, I used these uh, things that I learned from sports, think in in um, coping with my illness. What were those things? Tell us a little bit more about how to, how you coped. Um, so when I how how did it start? So I got breast cancer and. Um, it was um, shocking because I've never been really seriously sick. Okay, so they took out my breast, and I came to uh, to accept it very quickly. I I have to say, okay, breast. I don't need a breast. Right. I am fifty eight years old. Why do I need a breast? If they were to take anything, <laughs> take the breast. 
<laughs> if they take that, you know, like a pinky, it will be worse yeah. because I wouldn't be able to do certain things. But a breast doesn't matter. Well, I'm exaggerating here, but but if you think about it, that's actually true. Okay, so breast cancer, and then melanoma on my skin. <clears throat> that was much more of a shock because I lost my first husband to melanoma. Wow! So he died of melanoma tumors in his brain. I got a skin cancer, which I removed pretty quickly um, and was hoping for the best. Three years later, I had it in my brain. Right. Um, I may describe that moment when I found out that I had a tumor or I suspected that I had a tumor was pretty dramatic. And I described it in my, in my book. I was training for a for an Ironman, swimming a lot at the time. I was coming back from the pool, feeling very physically, um, you know, satisfied. I sat at my computer, and I tried to turn on my computer. I put my hand on the keyboard, I moved it to the right, and the hand vanished, as if it was cut off my, at my wrist, completely cut off. I couldn't believe what is happening. What is happening with my eyes? <laughs> it was shocking. I moved my hand back to the left. It reappeared as if magically reappeared. I couldn't understand it. I was sitting there. I put my head on the desk and trying to think, what, can, what could have happened? Am I going crazy? So I tried it again and again and again, and then, of course, this, the thought, the horrible thought struck. It must be brain. It must be brain tumor. But I tried to wrestle this thought as quickly as possible and throw it out. Um, and I did quite successfully for an hour or two, but then I, I still couldn't see. And um, it turned out that I had three brain tumors. One was bleeding, and the one that was bleeding was in my visual cortex, exactly the area that was responsible for vision in this right left corner. The tumor was taken out at Dana-Farber in Boston, and I regained my vision as if nothing happened. But of course, all of us knew, I did, and my family did, that at this point, I got a death sentence. The tumor was checked, uh, histopathologically checked, and it was melanoma, but we already knew it must be melanoma. And it was. So it was obvious that I'll die within four to seven months. At the time, people with brain tumors did not survive. 100% were dead. Really? Yeah, within months. And this is how my husband died. So um, it was uh, doubly, triply, whatever, uh, quadruply um, shocking and tragic because... I realized what it is, what is coming. I realized it very, very clearly. Yeah, and, and especially given your knowledge about the brain, did you instantly go into neuroscientist mode? Were you instantly thinking about where it is, the nerves around it, the impact it has, or were you just continually in a state of shock? Uh, you know, how, 
Well, How I did, you... did but, but uh, that first tumor was in the visual cortex. So when it was excised, I regained my vision. Uh, so it was okay. I understood visual cortex. That's what it does, and it is the the brain, uh, the the part of visual cortex that regulates vision in the right, uh, left. Uh, no, so what am I saying? The right low <laughs> quadrant <laughs> of the visual field. I checked it with the with the neurosurgeon that did the surgery, and yes, absolutely. Um, and that was it. But I, I knew and my family knew what was coming. It is not just that the tumor will, will stay there. The melanoma cells are already in my blood. They are, they are spreading. They are seeding all over my body and my brain. It was, it was pretty obvious. Mm. So we had to do something very different. Not just excise, cut out every tumor or radiate every tumor. Well, they were all the tumors were radiated in the end, but it wouldn't help because new would uh, new ones will be spreading, new ones will be growing, and they did. As you've had three cancer, you know, bouts with cancer at this point, and you're a scientist, as you mentioned, you understand these things. You eventually concluded, "I'm I'm just unlucky," but knowing what you know and 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 mentioning what you mentioned earlier, how much of these things that occur, do you think are due to epigenetics? You know, because I'm assuming, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, much of your life was lived in this healthy manner. So to get three kind of different types, or I guess two types, because the second one being melanoma, um, of cancer, have you lost faith in this, this idea of um, being able to change our gene expression or, or do you think there is something to that? Okay, so let's start with this, that I actually had other cancers as well. I had basal cell, which is not a deadly cancer, but it is cancer. And I had a squamous cell cancer on my lips, which wow. was quite horrible. So I did have at least four types that I know of, of cancer. So that was striking. Of course it was striking. And, you know, the fact that my husband died of melanoma couldn't be a, a genetic reason, of course. Right. <laughs> He's unrelated. He was unrelated to me. Uh, but um, environment, uh, possibly, perhaps. So melanoma is, is believed to be caused by, um, by sun exposure. But I was raised and lived in Poland for up to almost 40 years of age. Um, True, there were no sunscreens at the time that I was growing up, but in Poland, it's a northern country. There's not that much sun, and I was not lying on the beach. I was raised and grew up in Warsaw in the middle of the country. There's no beach. There's no uh, ocean. Um, I didn't really sunbathe or, you know, there were no sunbeds at that time at all. Uh, but everybody that I spoke to, oncologists, I mean, in this case, uh, believe that it is sun mainly. And uh, genetic predisposition. The fact that I had all the other cancers as well. I, I, I actually had a session with a geneticist to find out whether 
some of the genes that are um, that are thought to be involved in all these cancers in uh, that I experienced um, are related to um, to my um, misfortune. Um, they told me that they have no evidence. They could test me, but so what? They would come up with you know thousands thousands, hundreds of thousands of mutations, who, which everybody has, but they wouldn't be able to link it to the disease. They wouldn't be able to link it to these particular cancers. Right. I, I didn't do it. I think it is just bad luck, to tell you the truth. Wow. Yeah. And, and for a scientist, even, that has to be impossible to swallow, because as humans, we want answers, we want solutions, and then we'll take action. I mean, I know I've dealt with things myself. Everyone deals with things. And we will, when faced with difficulties, we'll go to the ends of the earth and essentially to say, well, we don't know where the end is yet, is is fairly defeating. However, you you beat this thing. You beat the 100% uh, mortality. And yeah. And with with some really incredible treatments. So now I'd like for you to explain to us this these new breakthroughs, this idea of immunotherapy. What is it? How did you use it? How does it help us? Okay. So um, when I got what I got, this first incident with uh, my hand disappearing, my family and I poured over the scientific literature about melanoma. I was actually doing it even before uh, because of my... Um, my first husband's death, uh, although he has died in 1985, there was no even a thought about, uh, I mean, there were all kinds of tries, but nothing helped him, um, but not with the immunotherapy. Um, so um, all together as a team, we were convinced that the way to go is immunotherapy. We also, of course, ran it by doctors and uh, friends, doctors, um, oncologists here and there in, in the best uh, institutions that were available to us. And they did agree too, immunotherapy. So, so what is it? Immunotherapy that I got consists of antibodies that are delivered through the veins into patient's body. What do they do? They're called uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So what they do is they block proteins present on T cells. T cells are immune cells in the human body. So these antibodies block proteins whose role was to recognize anything that was uh, alien to the body, including cancer. But my, anti my uh, T cells were fooled not to recognize these melanoma cells as alien to my body. That's why they could proliferate oh. uh, in, a, in a way that was uh, giving rise to tumors. You know, when cells proliferate in an unchecked way, uncontrolled way, they form tumors. So the, uh, these antibodies are supposed to block these blind, let's say, call them blind proteins, unblock them so that they again 
can fight the tumors. So it is an indirect way of affecting melanoma through T-cells, which are activated. Let's call them activated. Actually, they are blocked. The blocks are blocked. So in the in, in final result is they are activated to, again, be able to fight melanoma. And that's what I was given. I got two monoclonal antibodies that were directed at these uh, proteins on my T-cells. One is called epilomab, <laughs> very difficult, a tongue twister, <laughs> and another one, nivolumab. So the two, a combination of the two, was supposed to be like a double hit because I was basically in a mortal danger. Everybody knew I will die. So why try one and then another one? In the meantime, I could die. So they gave me two. The danger of giving me two at once was that I'll have very serious side effects, which I did. To explain, you don't have to tell me what the side effects are, but how does two of these impact those side effects? What's going on at that cellular level to have your body kind of revolt, I would imagine? Yeah, so my immune system was activated and it started attacking my healthy organs, Mm. like thyroid, for instance, like pituitary, like skin. Skin is an organ. It is the biggest organ of the human body. Uh, Very funny, right? Mm. But it is called an organ. So, in other words, I lost um, thyroid partially Mm. or almost completely. I lost part of my pituitary that produces hormones like cortisol that are important for stress and for, for any kind of activity. And I broke with rushes, horrible rushes mm. wow. in response to this treatment. But I'm alive. Yeah, it worked. I mean, <laughs> science, that is crazy. And that is what happens when people spend their entire lives working towards these things. Right, exactly. They come up with things that we wouldn't have thought about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, let alone develop drugs that can be given to a human being, tested first in animals, then in humans, wow. first in the tube, then in animals, then in, in human, and proven to be effective and not hurting people. Wow. I mean, they wow. hurt me a little bit, but I, you know, I'm glad that... Um, the overall effect was I'm alive. Absolutely. Well, how did your illnesses, how did these experiences change your view of your life? Uh, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I am an optimist and I always was. I always had a lot of energy, but <laughs> this, I got somewhat different perspective on things uh, despite the fact that I love to live and I love life. So this hasn't changed. I did and I still do, but I really try to use every moment of my life to do things that I really enjoy, including writing the book that I wrote, Mm -hmm. talking to you, Hmm. spreading the news that we're working hard on fighting mental illness that should be called 
I think, brain illness and not mental illness uh-huh. because it has to do with the physicality of the brain and not mental something, not that specific. Um, so this is how I change. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. change also in a negative way a little bit. You know, I don't have the same stamina. Uh, I lost muscles. I lost somewhat uh, of a balance and I lost... Um, spatial orientation these things will probably not come back i also lost vision in left eye due to radiation wow so all these things are you know affecting me i am a different person but i think i'm a more tolerant person as well sure yeah well i i have to say i really appreciate your time i appreciate your candor and openness and the book again the Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery. Tell us just in these last few minutes, you know, why did you write the book and what do you, you know, what's your favorite part of it? Because we only scratched the surface here when talking. We really didn't dive into or, or go into as much depth on your experience and and everything that came from it. So um, why write it and what do you love? What are the takeaways? Okay. So uh, why did I write it? Uh, when I started regaining my uh, sanity, so it was the period after immunotherapy, it lasted several months that I was coming to realization what happened to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, it has to be written down. It is too weird, too bizarre, too uh, out, otherworldly. What I experienced and I came back. That, that doesn't happen very often. So I wanted to share it. First, to share it with my family. And then to share it with everybody else. Uh, because it, it, I, I felt that it gave me a particular insight into what it is to be mentally ill. And to struggle with mortal sickness that I had. How one, uh, how one copes with it. It's not easy. And it happens to many people. Many people are mentally ill and many people have cancer. And cancer that, you know, they are told perhaps is um, terminal cancer, like in my case. So, uh, so what's the, the message? The message is that I found out that I wouldn't be able to be so successful in fighting it if not for my family and people that surrounded me throughout this process. In particular, my husband and my kids, who uh, happen to be particularly suited for <laughs> for this kind of uh, advice and support, uh, as I mentioned, they they are doctors and scientists. All my family is doctors and scientists. Oh wow! So very helpful, um, but not everybody is so lucky. Um, but everybody has friends. Everybody. Uh, has uh, a support system, and this support system is incredibly, incredibly important, especially for people with mental illness, because one of the symptoms that I mentioned is I lost insight into my disease. I had no idea that that I was behaving uh, abnormally. And uh, this is a characteristic feature of mental, of many mental illnesses that um that lack of insight so 
if one doesn't know, who would know? The family, mm. the loved ones, the doctors, the one, the people around um, should be, and hopefully I'll play this role as well. Uh, the ones who who support the, a, a person who is ill. Um, it is very similar to what happens in aging. Everybody's aging, and uh, soon we'll have more and more and more um, people who are really old uh, with uh, various neurodegenerative disorders of brain, which give similar symptoms that I did, dementias, Alzheimer's, these kinds of illnesses also require support from doctors and families before we design treatments. We don't have treatments for these disorders either. Absolutely. Well, Barbara, again, it's an incredible story. Congratulations on your defeat of all of these illnesses. And thank you for your time and your work. Again, the book is The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery. And as you heard, and as Barbara just alluded to, there's some really incredible parts where you talk about you know, your mental state during this and, and how you were unaware of what was going on and, and things like that. So it's, it's really an incredible story. We will link to that book on smartpeoplepodcast.com. And uh, so with that, Barbara, I wanted to say thank you. And uh, we appreciate you being on and congrats on uh, the book and the health. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. All right. We'll talk again soon. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Barbara Lipska. Barbara's book, The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you purchase the book through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any and all purchases you make through that link come at no extra cost to you and it greatly supports the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Please make sure you stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Sign up for Smart People Society if you're interested at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. We've got some great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode. Quick reminder that this week's episode was brought to you by Intercom. Quality pipeline means more revenue. And when you use Intercom, you get both. Intercom is the business messaging platform that streamlines your funnel. Its live chatbot automatically qualifies and converts site visitors into leads, driving the type of growth your business deserves. Find out all about it at intercom.com slash growth. That's intercom.com slash G-R-O-W-T-H growth. <laughs>